0: Sooner or later, you can bet your life that every Jew in this building is going to say to safety. He's a little too Jewish for my place.
1: <laughs> Shalom, and welcome to the Two Jewish radio show with Rabbi Sam Cohen and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Rita Katz, founder of the organization Sight, which stands for Search for International Terrorist Entities, and author of the new book, Saints and Soldiers, Inside Internet Age Terrorism, From Syria to the Capital Siege. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com the opinions of the host and guests on two jewish are their own and not those of the radio station two jewish is paid for by two jewish radio programs and podcasts tucson arizona and now here's rabbi sam kohan and two jewish <music> Shalom! It's now December, final month of the secular year, which means we're
0: officially in the holiday season between Thanksgiving and New Year's. That also means we're coming up on Hanukkah, the great Jewish festival of lights that shines its way into our homes and hearts in the last days of the secular year. This year, Hanukkah begins Sunday night, December 18th, two weeks from tonight. Eight great nights of Hanukkiyot, Hanukkah menorahs, that is the candelabra, latkes, dreidels, songs, gifts, and big celebrations. Officially, according to the rabbis of the Talmud, Hanukkah is a minor Jewish festival, similar in religious importance to Purim, not nearly as significant as Shabbat or the Jewish High Holy Days or the three pilgrimage festivals of Sukkot, Pesach, Passover that is, and Shavuot. However, in historical terms, Hanukkah outshines them all, except possibly for Passover, for without the events we celebrate on this festival of rededication, religious freedom would have died, and Judaism would have ended well over 2,000 years ago. That would have meant not only no Judaism today, but of course also no Christianity, which arose directly from Judaism, and no Islam, which began its existence with a basis in both Judaism and Christianity. The world would be very different indeed if the oppression of the Jews in the time of the Maccabees' revolt had succeeded in wiping out our religion. I'll talk much more about Hanukkah in upcoming two Jewish shows, of course. But the brief history is that after Alexander the Great conquered the Middle East and the known world, more or less, he allowed all local religions to continue without restriction, including Judaism but the generals who divided up his empire after his death and their successors didn't always follow his tolerant lead. In the Seleucid Empire, based in Syria, one of those descendants, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, decided everybody in his extensive realm should worship idols of himself. The subsequent guerrilla war, led by the Maccabees, eventually overthrew Syrian-Greek rule in Israel and created again an independent Jewish nation, affirming Jews' right to pray and live as we chose. It was a crucial moment, and as we say in our Al-Hanisim prayer on Hanukkah, the few defeated the many, the weak defeated the strong, the believers in one God defeated the worshippers of idols, and we rededicated, that's what Hanukkah means in Hebrew, dedication, we rededicated the temple and again prayed to God in our own way. Today we celebrate this lovely holiday thoroughly not only for its historical importance but for its beauty. To play us in this fine morning 2 weeks before Hanukkah begins here is that all honey scene the very prayer I spoke of a composition by Dove Framer sung by the Angel City Choir. Oh is Al Hanisim for Hanukkah coming up in two weeks. Join us at Congregation Beit Simcha for our fourth anniversary, fourth night of Hanukkah celebration. Be the light, Wednesday, December 18th. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org for more information and to sign up. Our guest this morning is one of the most fascinating people I've interviewed in over 20 years here on Two Jewish. Rita Katz was an undercover agent working to expose terrorist groups and then went on to found the organization SITE, which stands for Search for International Terrorist Entities. She moved from working to expose al-Qaeda and ISIS terrorist plots to revealing and combating right-wing extremist anti-Semites. And her new book, Saints and Soldiers Inside Internet Age Terrorism, From Syria to the capital Siege, is the extraordinary record of her extensive experiences. Meet this amazing woman when we come back in a moment here on 2Jewish.
1: We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you our community has to offer together we make tucson thrive when we win you win casino del sol the soul of tucson enterprise of the pascuiaki
0: tribe we are delighted to welcome to Two jewish our guests this morning rita katz is the executive director the founding executive director of the search for international terrorist entities site intelligence group She's an expert on counterterrorism, on the various organizations involved in it, tracking and analyzing global extremists, including both uh, Islamic extremists and domestic right-wing extremists. She was born into a Jewish family in Basra in Iraq and uh, eventually moved to Israel. And her new book is called Saints and Soldiers Inside Internet Age Terrorism from Syria to the Capital Siege. It's fascinating. Good morning, and welcome to Two Jewish.
2: Hi. Good morning. How are you?
0: Well, so how did you get into counterterrorism in the first place?
2: Who totally didn't think that I will do. Uh, I will be involved in counterterrorism. It all happened by a mistake, you know. And I always say, you never know what uh, your destiny is like. We moved to the United States back in 1997. When I say we, I mean my husband and. My three kids at that time. Today I have four. And what uh, we moved there from the from Israel, and that followed a lot of terrorist attacks in Israel at that time. After the peace process, when we realized that none of this is going to really change the situation, and my husband got a huge opportunity to work in uh, at the NIH. We decided to move, and I was looking for a job. I graduated from Middle East studies, as you mentioned, I was born in Iraq, so I was fluent in Arabic. And um, I was, I just started looking for a job, and I answered an ad in a newspaper for a counterterrorism organization. It didn't say that it was counterterrorism; it said that Middle East investigations and studies. I applied for the job, and before I knew anything, I found myself pretty much going undercover um, attending and trying to expose the terrorist front organization in the United States from Hamas to the Islamic Jihad and Al-Qaeda front groups. And so soon after that, in after 9-11, I started, I decided to create uh, my own organization, taking the path of where I saw terrorists heading to, and that was the Internet. Um, because after the destruction of Bora and the training camps in Afghanistan, suddenly the internet became the most important uh, uh, recruitment and training camps for the newcomers uh, in the jihadi network, where Al Qaeda, especially at that time. And I created the site intelligence group.
0: It, it's a. Uh Uh, amazing story. Your own story is fascinating. Um, And you make this powerful point really all through the book that where there used to be actual training camps in real life, it has now moved online and all of that is going on under our noses, frankly, every day. Uh, We will talk much more with Rita Katz about sight, and about her new book, Saints and Soldiers The War Against Counterterrorism, when we come back in a moment here on To Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a fabulous Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina foothills, continues to celebrate a wonderful array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive Congregation in Northwest Tucson and the Foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, cultural Jewish programming, and major holiday celebrations. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, org. B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675, that's... 276-5675 for more information. Religious school is going for school-aged children and grandchildren. Join us in our fabulous Hebrew school, Barnbot Mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes Experience, Confirmation Teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to Beit SimchaTucson.org. Coming up, December 21st, Be the Light, our fourth anniversary celebration on the fourth night of Hanukkah, a wonderful event with song, food, drink, and joy. Sign up soon. Join me at Be the Light. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. You can come in person Friday night or Saturday morning, or both. Email me, rabbi at beitzimchatucson.org. Join us every Friday night on our Facebook page if you can't come in person. Shabbat evening celebration services are at 6.30. Saturday Shabbat morning services are at 10 a.m., all with me leading them. The Facebook page is B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson, Beit Simcha Tucson. Our very musical services are in person and by virtual experience. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. You can access those through Beit Simcha, Tucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A. Our wonderful religious school is available in blended format, too. Some students live, some on Zoom. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, religious school, Torah text programs, Bar and Bat Mitzvah, confirmation, high school programs, and... Fantastic array of Adult Education Academy courses live and on Zoom, and all of our services in person and on Facebook. Go to Beit Simcha Tucson.org, B E I T S I M C H A Tucson.org, or call 520 276 5675. That's five two zero two seven six fifty six seventy five. 276 5675, And don't miss Be the Light. Wednesday night, December 21st. Do you know someone who personally made a major difference for the whole Jewish people? An individual who's done important work for Klal Yisrael and deserves to be highly recognized for that effort. As president of the Kohan Memorial Foundation, I'm grateful that the modest cash awards we started more than 10 years ago have grown into a substantial amount of unrestricted funds given to winners with the help of donors like many of you. The foundation, named for my grandparents, Rabbi Samuel S. Kohan and A. Irma Kohan, makes these awards for important service to Klaal Yisrael, the entire Jewish people. That service can be in one of four activities, unity, education, creative arts, or rescue. Past Kohan Award recipients are remarkable people who've done outstanding work. If you know someone who qualifies for a Kohan Foundation Award, please go to Kohanaward.com, C-O-H-O-N, award.com, and fill out the simple nomination form. That website is Kohanaward.com. Nominate an individual or donate yourself. Do it for the whole Jewish people. If you've got a question, comment, compliment, or a criticism, a kfetch or a kfell, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O, JewishRadio18 at gmail. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website tojewishradio.com streaming us from there, downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store as very popular Jewish podcast, top ten in America according to Moment Magazine. Over one hundred and seventy-five thousand downloads on Podbean, now also on Spotify. Please post a rating review Two Jewish wherever you listen. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation. Known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve, Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, reform, conservative and orthodox, is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470 to speak to a family advisor at Evergreen. Call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good
3: morning, Rabbi.
0: One of the fascinating, I don't want to say it's an oddity, but one of the fascinating trends in Jewish history and Jewish historical experience is the fact that while modernity came to Jews in the West around 1800 and after Napoleon broke down the walls of the ghetto and so on and Jews began to create other streams of reform Judaism and then modern orthodoxy and then conservative Judaism there's reactions against them that in the Sephardic world that kind of for want of a better term emancipatory modern development never really seems to have taken place and Sephardic Jews in general didn't haven't embraced progressive synagogues most places they exist whether they're reform conservative reconstructionist renewal whatever um and In in Israel, where the majority of Jews are either Sephardic or Eidot HaMizrach, Eastern communities, um, that still has an important part to play in the kind of lack of popularity still for uh, liberal congregations, which is not the case in America. It's it's an oddity of, I don't know, of history, of geography, of culture.
3: Yeah, well, a couple of things. First of all, we've talked about this before on this show, but may be useful to remind your listeners that, um, Sephardic and Mizrahi are not the same. There are a lot of people who claim they are. And in Israel, the picture gets very confused because the Israelis who tend to see things in a binary way anyway, um, tend to label people either Ashkenazic or Sephardic. But in fact, um, a Jew whose origins are in Iran is certainly a Dodd Mizrach and Mizrahi, but not at all Sephardic. They don't have a Ladino heritage, they don't know the tunes, they don't have the foods, they don't have the customs. There was a whole Sephardic world around the Mediterranean when Jews were first exiled from Spain and Portugal. They settled throughout the Ottoman Empire, but also in places like Amsterdam and London and even Rome. Um, so these communities have a great deal in common and these are also in many cases the places where the enlightenment the emancipation whatever never really arrived i mean it did obviously arrive in london paris amsterdam rome yes but also those places had long established sephardic congregations right. which. Stuck to their own thing and did their own thing. And the Sephardim in the United States, who are not Mizrahi, but who were actually descended from Spanish or Portuguese Jews, um, live concentrated in a few centers like Rochester, New York, Seattle, Washington, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the Philadelphia and New York, big cities too. Well, we're not implying that Seattle is not a big city, Erwin. <laughs>
0: Um, I was thinking of Rochester, but I don't want to insult. uh, I have friends from Rochester. I shouldn't say that.
3: So, but my point is simply that um, these, these places have longstanding Sephardic congregations, which call themselves Orthodox, but the majority of Jews who go there and pray on a Saturday morning get there by car. So the... Ashkenazic Orthodox world might chafe at the idea that these people affiliate with an Orthodox congregation and consider themselves Orthodox. Um more than that, they eat out in restaurants fairly liberally, like at least dairy and fish, or fish that right? That Ashkenazic Orthodox people rarely do. It, it is quite interesting.
0: It always has seemed to me, and this could be wrong, but up until emancipation, up until there were other kind of more liberal streams of Judaism, I suspect that while orthodoxy was a very comprehensive lifestyle and Jews were compelled to be with other Jews, that I suspect that there were Jews who were more um, relaxed in their practice, and that was accepted, that it wasn't quite so monolithic. Uh, and I know like when I was serving in Australia at a congregation there, um, while three-quarters of the Jews in Sydney, for example, thought of themselves as Orthodox and belonged to the Orthodox shul, they would go out Friday night for dinner after services and pay at a restaurant. It wasn't a kosher restaurant even, you know, or they would drive somewhere um, or go see a football match on Saturday afternoon, go to the beach. Um, and so I, th- I think that those... Those labels are very interesting, and that's why people have this perception that the Sephardic world was more liberal. I don't know if it was more liberal exactly, but it was a, a, an observance of Judaism in an orthodox way that wasn't quite so restrictive, perhaps. Right. Thanks so much, Tom. We'll talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie New, brought to you by Two Jewish as a public service. Moisha goes to the kosher restaurant, and the head waiter comes over and greets him. Good morning, sir. May I take your order? Yes, replies Moisha, I'd like two boiled eggs, one of them so undercooked it's all runny, and the other so overcooked it's tough and impossible to eat. Also, I'd like some cooked pastrami that's been sitting around so it's cold and greasy, potatoes fried but still raw in the middle, burnt toast that crumbles when you touch it, margarine straight from the deep freeze that's impossible to spread and a pot of very weak coffee, lukewarm. That's a complicated order, sir, says the bewildered waiter. Might be difficult. Moshe replies, Oh, I don't understand. That's what I got yesterday. That was the old Jewish joke of the week. Special feature of Two Jewish just for you. You should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. We're in the midst of a sequence of splendid portions, rich in complexity, action, and misdeed, all blended with serious family dysfunction. This week's Sedra Vayishlach in Genesis continues the tale of Jacob, most intriguing of all the patriarchs, a man who rises above his own duplicitous nature to become the father of the tribes of Israel. As our story begins, Jacob is returning home to Canaan, having made good in the old country of Sumeria in Haran, today's Turkey, near the Syrian border. He has four wives, 12 children, including 11 sons, and large flocks of sheep and herds of cattle. Truly great wealth for the day. As he's about to cross into Canaan, he learns his brother Esau, whom he wronged so seriously just before leaving home in a rush twenty years ago, is coming to meet him with an army of four hundred men. Jacob is panicked, deducing that Esau is not coming his way with four hundred guys with spears to welcome him home. To try to preserve at least half his household, Jacob divides his family and possessions into two camps and then carefully arranges a large gift for Esau. That night, he goes onto a small island in the midst of a tributary of the Jordan River, the Yavok, to contemplate his options. While he is there, a stranger, called in Hebrew merely Ish, a guy, comes upon him. The Torah is unclear as to whether this nocturnal visitor is a man, an angel, a representative of God in some other way, or even a character in a dream. Jacob wrestles the visitor the rest of the night. And finally, as dawn breaks, he prevails. The stranger cannot get away. And before he can escape, Jacob insists the stranger give him a blessing. It is at this moment that Jacob is blessed with a new name, Yisrael, Israel, the first time that famous name is used in the Bible. It means either Prince of God or more likely one who wrestles with God. And we children of Israel, in other words, Jacob, have been wrestling with God in one way or another ever since. As the angel tells Jacob, your name shall be called Yisrael, Israel, for you have contended with gods and men and have prevailed. Jacob survives, and the reunion with Esau proves to be anticlimactic. Esau comes up to Jacob with all his armed men, but instead of attacking him, He gives his brother a big hug and a kiss. And if all is not forgiven, at least no blood is shed. The dramatic narrative of Jacob's struggle and triumph has become a metaphor for our own struggles with belief and family baggage. We are all descendants of Yisrael, the one who wrestled with God. And if we engage in that process for the sake of sacredness and belief, well then we too may triumph and reach our own promised land. In this season of merciless commercialism, holiness can still be created and found. In fact, it is that very search and struggle that make us the people Israel and give us a land engaged in that same pursuit. When we truly are children of the one who wrestled with God, when we choose to wrestle with God daily, we elevate our lives and our experience. May it be so in this coming holiday season and all seasons. When we return on to Jewish our guest this morning Rita Katz founder and executive director of Sight the organization that searches and finds terrorist conspiracies internationally and right here at home in America explains how domestic terror feeds on itself and the internet and its own anti-semitic extreme right-wing positions and why it's so incredibly dangerous right now find out we come back in a moment here on
1: to Jewish We continue with our 2Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary.
0: Well, our anti-Semitism report continues to force its way into our news feed every week. Last week, less than two weeks after the Zionist Organization of America, the ZOA, honored Donald Trump and called him the best friend Israel ever had in the White House, the former president casually dined at Mar-a-Lago with two of the nation's leading celebrity Jew haters, Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. Kanye we know about, of course. Nick Fuentes is a white supremacist, Holocaust denier, and anti-Semite leader, if such a term can apply. This latest action of Trump's, having a public dinner with evil anti-Semites, has been roundly condemned by nearly all his normal allies, with the exception of his Jewish daughter and son-in-law, by the way. Of course, Trump never apologizes, so don't hold your breath waiting for that. This is a breathtakingly obvious embrace of disgusting anti-Semites. You can't call it a dog whistle or a clue. It is a way of continuing the normalizing of anti-Semitic people and views in our American culture. And it sticks. The new Israeli government is taking shape under Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, and it will include three of the leaders of his most extreme coalition partners in key roles. All three are quite controversial, to say the least. Just to review, for those of you unfamiliar, with the remarkably complex nature of government creation in Israel. After an election, the leader of the coalition that wins the majority of the seats in the Knesset, Israel's unicameral legislature, has to assemble a functioning government. Since he or she never has an actual majority of the representatives in the 120 seat Knesset, the prime minister must give out key ministries as... um, prizes to some of the elected members of his party and to the leaders of the parties that agreed to vote with the prime minister and form the majority of the Knesset. It always takes some time to sort all this out. There are 27 separate cabinet posts in Israel currently. When the election results are in, the president of Israel, currently Isaac Herzog, gives the leader of the winning coalition, in this case Bibi Netanyahu, a period of time, usually about a month, to assemble his government. Netanyahu got a 28-day mandate. He can't ask for an extension. It's up to the president to grant. Occasionally, a prime minister-elect can't assemble a government. This happened at Sipi Livny in 2008 and 2009, and there are either new elections or the mandate is given to the opposition to form the government. Netanyahu will not fail to form a government, although it may come down to the wire The process of allocating the ministries typically involves all kinds of negotiating and backroom deals. The leaders of the smaller parties in the coalition always want certain ministries based on their own agendas, while the members of the prime minister's party, in the case of Netanyahu, Likud, also jockey for key assignments. Some ministries, which are similar to American cabinet posts, include overseeing important areas of policy or large bureaucracies. Others are less significant or have smaller areas of supervision and influence. According to reports, Netanyahu has given the finance ministry to Bezalel Schmutrich, the super far-right settler activist politician who has advocated for Torah law, that is Talmudic law, halacha to be considered in Israeli legal cases, which Israel, not being an orthodox country, it, uh, it's not happening now. Smutrich has also maneuvered to try to undermine the Supreme Court of Israel, and he is deeply anti-Arab. Now, the finance ministry is an important ministry and a potential launching pad for an extremist to jump up to higher levels of Israeli politics, but it is also often a trap for politicians in Israel. When the economy goes well, the prime minister takes credit. When the economy goes badly, he blames the finance minister and replaces him. Still, it is a little shocking to see someone with views like Smotrich's in such a key position. More controversially still, Netanyahu is likely to give Itamar Ben-Gvir, the inflammatory leader of the Otsma Yehudit party, who has been called a pyromaniac for his penchant for stirring up trouble, riots, and worse with Palestinians and other Arabs, he's supposed to get the Ministry of National Security, that's domestic security, that is the old police ministry, Ben-Gavir is an acolyte of the late Rabbi Meir Kahani, a Kahanist who was expelled from Knesset and left a legacy of extremist anti-Arab followers who have embraced violence and been officially declared terrorists by the state of Israel. Ben-Gavir has said and done many inflammatory things, including advocating expelling Arabs from Israel who are judged to be quote-unquote disloyal. Ben-Gavir's ministry would have control over border police and security in the West Bank. That is not likely the best place to put a verbal and potentially literal bomb thrower like Itamar Ben-Gavir. And finally, Avi Maoz, the only representative in Knesset of Noam, a far-right, ultra-Orthodox splinter party. He is an advocate who is deeply hostile to LGBTQ rights and especially non-Orthodox streams of Judaism, you know, Reform, Conservative, and Progressive Judaism as practiced by 90% of the Jews of America and Canada. Anyway, Maoz would be appointed to a new position controlling Jewish identity with his own mini-ministry and given control over programming in Israel's schools. Now, we all know that Netanyahu is a chameleon of the right whose personal principles are flexible enough that he has advocated a wide variety of positions during his many years in Israeli leadership— Some of Netanyahu's positions have been self-contradictory, even as he edges farther and farther towards the right. Still, he is at heart a pragmatist. But this current coalition of his, which includes not only religious parties, they're always there. By the way, Netanyahu himself is not religious. But this government will include extreme right-wing religious Zionist parties that advocate actively racist policies towards Arabs within Israel and in the territories, and they have great hostility towards non-Orthodox Israelis, which is the majority of Israelis by far, and Jews around the world. And these leaders will have key spots in Israel's government. That much seems clear. It isn't likely to turn out well. And finally, Tel Aviv was dethroned as the world's most expensive city last week, according to the new rankings. New York and Singapore tied for the top spot. Tel Aviv is now the third most expensive place in the world, well, not inexpensive. And that's the Two Jewish News of Jews, around the World. Our brothers, our brothers, the stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation. Known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve, Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, conservative, and orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470 to speak to a family advisor at Evergreen. Call 520-888-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish uh, one of the world's experts on counterterrorism. To be honest, Rita Katz, whose new book is called "Saints and Soldiers," it is about the ongoing challenge and really the war against counter uh, against terrorism. Um, the internet, uh, you know, hasn't. It's been around a long time. When did you realize that something extraordinarily different was going on from the counterterrorism that we spoke about earlier, where you're working against Al-Qaeda and against ISIS? When did it kind of dawn on you that things were so different now?
2: So the changes happen as technology uh, progressed. But I would say, you know, like I said in the introduction of the book, Terrorist organizations always use the internet, but they used it as a tool. Hamas used to and still is use the internet with a website where they announce events or front or their front groups or KKK and Hezbollah. They all use the internet, but the way it's being used today is that this is the uh, the, the oxygen of these movements. Without the internet, these organizations, terrorist organizations, in the shape that we see them today, could not be could not exist.
0: You know, uh, it is shocking uh, the horrifying violence that's involved in these many attacks, and and people somehow say, yes, but what about other kinds of terrorism? There's something perverse um about the far-right extremist terrorism first of all it's deeply anti-semitic in quality whether jews are attacked or not there's a there's somehow always an association that they're attacking the global jewish conspiracy right the zionist uh, entity and and then there's a rejoicing in violence um i don't know that this makes any sense but Because all terrorism is evil, but at least you can say when there's Islamist terrorist attack, it's usually designed to hurt the people who they believe are are evil. There's just a glorification of violence in this far-right extremism that it almost doesn't matter who the victims are. Is that a fair assessment?
2: Yes, and, and, and there's much more into that as I describe in my book. Um, it is among the pillars of the hate that you can see within these far-right extremist communities. It is, it is like almost the bread and butter for all of them. It, 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 it's even beyond the hate against minorities and Muslims and others. And so in almost every attack that we have seen in, recent, in the recent few years, especially since Bauer's attack, anti-Semitism is mentioned there. Anti-Semitism is blamed for, for the feminist movement. It's blamed for almost every suffering that the white supremacy can describe. And so for me, when I moved to the United States, and you know, as, as 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 you probably read the book, and you saw that I have my life followed with terrorism all the time. My father was executed in Iraq because he was blamed to be a Jewish spy, and then we moved to the to the Israel. And once we moved to Israel, literally a few months later, it was the Yom Kippur War, and my life was always followed with um, atrocities and and unhappiness about. Uh, because I was Jewish. My childhood was completely destroyed. And so I was hoping that in Israel my kids will be able to have different kind of life. But when the terrorist attacks continued to follow us there and we had the opportunity to move to the United States, despite the fact that I really wanted to stay in Israel, I felt that the need to give them new kind of life to see that there is life without terrorism. And I truly believe that the United States is the place for us where people can worship whatever, whatever religion they want. And soon after, I realized that, it fa- in fact, it is not what I was hoping for. And I su- started tr- tracking far right. It was, it was, for me, something that, for many years, I was, I was blaming my parents. For being a Jew, why did I have to be a Jew? But it really made me who I am because the fact that I became um, so important in the counterterrorism field, my background, my history, and everything I learned in my life really helped me understand it in a way that others uh, that that I could uh, analyze it and predict where it's heading to, and. Uh, It's not going to be changed. And what we are seeing now with the anti-Semitism from uh, leaders in the U.S. community here from, whether it is Trump or uh, other individuals, or I prefer not to even mention their name, you could see a wave of reviving this whole anti-Semitism. And I will tell you, I'm scared. I, you know, despite the fact that my father was killed, despite the fact that we lived in Iraq, we always had a mezuzah on our door. We always continue to practice any way or shape or form of showing that we are Jews. In the United States, in the last five, six years, I don't have a mezuzah on my door.
0: So I, I want to jump forward. There's so much in your book and so much careful and thoughtful detail and so much evidence about what's going on uh, from the internet, from interviews, from, of course, your own deep experience here. Tell us a little bit about the Capitol siege, um, because it all kind of came together. And I think for many Americans, January 6th, 2021 was a horrible day. But um, seeing a Camp Auschwitz t-shirt, hearing some of the anti-Semitic rhetoric, can you touch base a little bit on that?
2: Absolutely. And thank you very much for bringing this point, because, you know, when I, when I sent a um, proposal for the book to Columbia University Press, uh, it was long before capital siege. It was actually pretty much in the beginning of 2020 when COVID just started. And what really uh, I saw was that as COVID had started, the trend of um, attacks and incitement for violence following Bauer's attack in Pittsburgh, that the community is growing. That the community has been able to attract uh, various, various aspects of the far right, far right extremist movements. It wasn't only neo Nazis. It wasn't only ultranationalists. nationalists. You could see that uh, militia groups that um, and, and other extremist movements are joining the white supremacy, and they started creating a block, and that block, many of us remember, where some of them were saying that uh, 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 COVID doesn't exist, and then they went into the uh, anti-vaccine, and and, bla- and, and this, this anti mandate and that That community continued to grow, and every time I was sending a new outline because I could see the change in the movement, I submitted the book pretty much two months after the capital Seat. That was the only chapter that I had to write and because it was all predicted, and and you could see in the book how it was really, I wrote it in a chronological order because it was written as events were happening, as we could see the the big change. The big change was, as you could see, the network growing and the QAnon movement and the far right became one block. It was it was it was a block that that took under its umbrella the mega community and and all the different conspiracy theories under one. One block and that's what I call the far right 2.0. And before the election in 2020, it was pretty clear from the messages of this community that if Trump is not going to win the election, is tricked and that there is an existential threat to the far right at large, if this if this election is not going to be led and and won by Trump. The intelligence information that we have been sending to our, our partners, U.S. government, uh, Secret Service, etc., cetera, we're all getting that information. We actually sent about three or four dozens of alerts before January 6th, exactly about what was going to happen. That individuals are coming to surround Congress, that PINS is going to be executed. Or calls for execution, that, that Congress is going to be under siege, and that officials, law, law work, uh, our law officials are going to be, uh, arrested by the, the extremists on that day. The intelligence was there, but no one was acting on it, or it's not, not no one. The order. Why, why
0: don't people appreciate the, the threat? You would think by now there's been plenty of evidence.
2: I think that the intelligence was shared. I don't, I'm not, I don't think, I actually, I'm sure. I, as I wrote in the book in, in the year after, um, it, at the end of, when I had to uh, update the book, we received FOIA documents, which is freedom of information, by organizations that sued the government to see what intelligence information was there. And our reports were among the leading in, uh, in these documents that were shared within FBI, DHS, Secret Service, and you just name that, Capitol Police. And we, in fact, were briefing many of these organizations before. There was sharing of information. In my book, Terrorist Hunter, uh, that I was in 2003, it was an indictment about how government agencies were not sharing information, was holding everything. This time, there was full uh, proof that the information that we shared was, we released was shared within all of them. But now, after you saw the uh, January 6th committee, it's pretty clear that Trump was one of the individuals, was the reason that much of this information was not acted on. He played a vital role in instigating. Uh, these attacks. And in fact, just yesterday we heard about the Oath Keepers who basically fulfilled his order, and thank God they were all convicted, and they're expecting um, to be in prison for many years.
0: I, I want to thank Rita Katz for a great and fascinating visit here on 2Jewishers. book is called Saints and Soldiers. Where can people go to find out more about SITE and to find out more about your book?
2: So, just Google Site Intelligence Group, you can Google my name, a cat. Please do not believe all the conspiracy theories that you will see there attached to my name, that uh, I behead people and hide them in my basement and, and many other things. You can find me on LinkedIn, you can find Site Intelligence Group um, website immediately, Twitter, all the main platforms pretty much.
0: Thank you so much. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guests get a final musical playout. We are the soul of Tucson.
1: We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson,
0: Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Emily Bowen Cohen, a Jewish Native American activist, author and artist on her new illustrated book, A Member of Two Tribes. Don't forget, join us, Congregation Beit Simcha, every Friday night. Services in Odeg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, two 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in kiddish, Live, in person, and on our Facebook page. And sign up for our fourth anniversary, fourth night of Hanukkah celebration. Be the light. Go to our website, org. Our playout this morning is for the upcoming Holiday of Hanukkah coming up in 2 weeks. Hanirot Halalu composed by my dad Rabbi Baruch Kohan. We light these lights to remind us of those great days. My friends have a Shavuot, a good week and a week we pray profoundly of peace.
1: Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.